Hi everybody, my name is Aaron and I am one of the pastors here in SIBKL. Today is going to be a little bit different. We will be taking communion at the end of the sermon. So remember to prepare your emblems. Grab a piece of bread, cracker and a drink. Alright, let's get into the message right now. We will be looking at one of the letters to the seven churches. The letter to the church of Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, to seven. Now let's look into our Bibles and read together Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. All together. Alright. One, two, three. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is, is, which is in the paradise of God. God bless the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Lord, we want to thank you for today. We ask, Lord, that you come and be with us. And Lord, you speak to us, Lord, through your word, Lord. You speak to us, Lord, through this letter to the church of Ephesus, Lord. And may we heed your word and may we respond to your word. In Jesus' most mighty name we pray. Amen. Now, let us look into the background of the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus back then. For the city of Ephesus, from an economic point of view, Ephesus was the capital city and the financial center of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was also the largest city of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor and had a population of over 250,000 people. It was a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea, making it a trading city where many people in the region would travel to trade. Remember what uh, Pastor John said last week? He mentioned that Ephesus was the first trading, trading area, trading city, where people will go before visiting the other cities. We are talking about a big, big city back then, which is also a trading hub with many inhabitants and is rich in resources. I would equate the city of Ephesus to maybe London or New York in today's time. From a spiritual point of view, Ephesus was the center of idol worship, idol and pagan worship in Asia Minor. In Acts chapter 19, it states that Ephesus hosted the temple of Artemis. This is a massive, massive temple that was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, and was held up by 127 marble pillars. It was so impressive that it was named as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
The worship of Artemis combined religion and sexual immorality, making Ephesus steeped in pagan worship and sexual sin. We can see how celebrated Artemis, the god of Artemis, was in Acts chapter 19, where it shows that silversmiths in Ephesus prospered because many throughout Asia would purchase silver and bronze idols of Artemis from them. Now, let us look at the background for the church in Ephesus. In AD 53, Paul, on his third missionary journey, established a church in Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for three years. Three. When Paul was there, there was a great, great revival. And all this is documented in Acts chapter 19 and 20. So, I do encourage you to read Acts chapter 19 and 20 because it gives a full description of what happened in Ephesus when Paul was there. Now, let's go through Acts chapter 19 just briefly, very short, just to show you the kind of revival that was happening in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19 verse 10, it states that the gospel spread throughout all of Asia. Can you imagine that all of Asia heard the gospel because of this church? This is a massive statement. Imagine saying that SIBKL spread the gospel throughout all of Malaysia. That's a huge statement, right? But this is not just one country, it's not just one nation, it's the entire region. In Acts chapter 19, 11 to 12, it states that unusual or creative miracles occurred, right? Miracles in itself is already unusual, right? It's rare and it's hard to come by. Maybe in SIBKL, it happens a bit more. But saying that unusual miracles occurred, that is just blowing it out of proportions and saying that things that we cannot imagine was happening there. And one of the examples given was that handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were placed on sick people and they were healed of their diseases and delivered of evil spirits. Acts 19, 13-17 states that there was a fear of the Lord in the city and name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honoured. In verse 18, it states that many who became believers and confessed their sinful practices. And Acts 19, 19 states that many who practiced sorcery or, or witchcraft brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. And the value of the books that were burned was 50,000 pieces of silver, which in today's value is equivalent to 12 million ringgit Malaysia. That's crazy. That's, that's a lot of money, right? Now, going, continuing in Acts 19, 23 to 41, it states that the purchase of idols, remember the idols of Artemis, dramatically reduced, showing that the worshippers of Artemis are now becoming the worshippers of Jesus. That's insane, right? That's crazy. And that was the revival that was happening in Ephesus. And after ministering for three years in Ephesus, Paul left Ephesus in AD 55 and then appointed Timothy to become the next primary apostolic leader of the church. Ten years after that, AD 65, John, God's beloved, became the primary leader in Ephesus for a season. He was later imprisoned on the island of Patmos just off the coast of Ephesus, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was written around AD 90, almost 40 years after Paul first established the church in Ephesus. At that time, 
1890, the Church of Ephesus have grown to be the largest and the most influential church since the Church of Jerusalem was scattered in AD 70. All right, now we have established the background of the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus. Let's move to the letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. I've broken down uh, this part, this letter, to five different parts. Part 1, revelation of Jesus. This verse 1, Jesus reveals or shares a revelation of himself. Part 2, the reassurance. This is verse 2 to 3 and verse 6. Jesus commends the church for what they are doing well, what they're doing good. Part 3, the rebuke. Now, Jesus rebukes the church for forgetting their first love. Part 4, respond. How should the church, or how should we respond to this rebuke? And part five, the reward. What are the rewards for overcoming the challenge? Now, let's go to part one, the revelation of Jesus. John starts the letter in verse one with the revelation of Jesus. It states, it states that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The meaning of this revelation was revealed in the previous chapter, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. And it says that this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or messengers. This could mean angelic beings or leaders or pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does it mean when Jesus said he holds the seven stars? which are the messengers, the leaders or the pastors, in his right hand. Jesus holds these leaders. It reveals the revelation of his tender care and commitment to help these leaders. And there is a desire to anoint his servant as bright stars, reflecting his light to equip the church as a lampstand, touching and impacting the world and the region. In Psalms 17, 17, King David associated God's right hand with his kindness and protection uh, from those who rose against him. In Psalm 16:11, God's right hand is associated with God's delight. In other verses, God's right hand is associated with God's blessing. That's Psalms 18:35. God's power in Psalms 20, verse 6, and a place of honor in Hebrew chapter 1, verse 3. So, what does it mean when Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand? It means that he has anointed these leaders. He cares for them and is committed to help them. Uh, his kindness, his protection, his delight, his blessing, power is upon them. Now, what does it mean when Jesus said, he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands or the seven churches? It means that Jesus is in the midst of these churches. It means that he is literally walking up and down the aisles of the church. We may not see him and sometimes we may not feel him, but he is there. And right now, he is with us in our homes, in our rooms. And if you are listening to this in the car, uh, he is with you in your car. It shows that Jesus is deeply involved with his church. He is not standing from afar, giving instructions, you know, but he is with us to direct, to encourage, to help and to protect us. Just like how 
Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. He was there. When we as God's servants feel inadequate in our ministries or in our work or in our circumstances or in overcoming temptation, we can confess that Jesus holds us in his right hand and walks in partnership with us to help us. You know, the first part of Deuteronomy 23, 14 states, For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Now, let's move on to part number two, the reassurance. You know, Jesus is very smart. He's doing what we call the sandwich method, right? He says something good, he rebukes, and then he sandwiches it with something good as well. So that's why verse two and three was a commendation. And then he rebukes in verse uh, four and five. And then he gives something good again in verse six. So the reassurance, I'm, I'm bundling this up, verse two and three and six. You know, Jesus was re commending or reassuring the church in Ephesus for what they did well. Now, verse two, it states this. It states this I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Now, verse six. But you have this in your favor. You hate the Nicolaitans, the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm going to paraphrase in my own words what Jesus was saying. In verse two, he was practically saying, good job. I know what you have done and have been doing. I know all about the ministries, the outreaches, the mission trips, the community projects that you have been working on. You do not tolerate people who promote false doctrine or theology. Now, here's an interesting fact. Did you know that Paul warned the Ephesians that false teachers would rise up in their midst? Now, this can be found in Acts uh, chapter 19, verse 23 to 30. That's why I say read Acts 19 and 20. You know, and the church in Ephesus heeded this warning and they did well to examine the false teachers. Now continue back to verse three. I know that you have been working hard. You persevered and have been diligent in ministry and your calling and that you are still going strong. Now verse six, and this is in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which are practices of immorality and sexual sin. Right, so this church seemed to have done everything right, right? If this was a report card, I would have said that this church got all A's or distinction for every subject. Now, if Jesus were to write a letter to SIBKL right now, or in our time, if he were to tweet about it, WhatsApp us, Telegram us, or even do a clubhouse chat about SIBKL, what do you think he would comment about us? Honestly, I think that SIBKL is very much like the church of Ephesus. We have a great church, great ministries, fantastic outreaches, and community programs. Our church is impacting many in Malaysia and many outside Malaysia. Like the Ephesians, I think Jesus would say, good job. I know what you have been doing and you are doing it well. I know you are hardworking and are persevering and have not given up. You are connecting well with each other. You are connecting well with your community and others. But have we been connecting with God? And this is part three, the rebuke to the church 
of Ephesus. In verse 4, it says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You know, I love the, the TPT version, the Passion Translation version. It says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. What happened to the church of Ephesus? How were they able to do everything right but get the single most important thing wrong? They had forgotten the first and greatest commandment, the command to love God with all our heart, all our soul and all our mind. The church in Ephesus saw that increasing their ministry to be more important than increasing their love for Jesus. We need to connect with God. Remember what Pastor Chu said, especially in the beginning of the year? Connect, connect, connect. Now, let's do a quiz. On who remember what the three connects are? I kind of gave it already back then. But right now, I want you to type into the chat right now what the three connects are. Can you do it right now? All right. I'm seeing, I'm seeing some connects. That's pretty good. All right. I'm going to give it to you. Uh, you guys are doing a good job. But... I'm going to give it to you right now. It's number one, connect with God. Number two, connect with one another. And number three, connect with the outside world. Here, Jesus is saying that we need to connect with Him. We have forgotten our first love and forsaken Him. This is very important because if we get this right, we get the rest right. If we get this wrong, everything else will be wrong. If we do not connect with God, but we are connecting with one another and connecting with the outside world, then there is no meaning in what we are doing. The first connect, first connect, which is connect with God, loving Him and communing with Him, this sets the course of the trajectory for our lives, our ministry and our church. It is the foundation. And the example is like sailing. If you want to sail north and you want to go north, we need to see the compass and set the sails so that we head north. Not connecting with God is like not looking at the compass and letting the wind just simply take you wherever you want to go. Connecting with God sets you on the right trajectory. Now, how are we to connect back with God? In Revelation 2, God did not just rebuke the church of Ephesus and let them be. Remember, he holds the seven stars, the leaders in the right hand, and walks among the lampstands, the churches. After rebuking, he tells of how we are to respond to this rebuke, which leads me to part four. Now, the first part of part four says this, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In NKJV, it says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. So Jesus said that there are three responses that is needed to connect and restore our love for God. Remember, repent, and do. Do the first works. Remember, they were to recall, the church of Ephesus were to recall how they used to love and spend time with Jesus. Now we are to recall His goodness, His mercy, his loving kindness and the devotion we had in the past for Him. Do you remember the time when you were so lovesick for Jesus? Where all you wanted to do was to spend time with Him, 
reading his word, speaking to him, worshipping him and listening to every single thing that he has to say. The second response, repent. They were, they were to repent of the negligence of not loving and communing with Jesus, of losing their first love. Repentance is not just saying sorry to God, but it is about changing your vision, the way you look at things, your priorities, and your lifestyle choices. In this context, in our context, it is about making the choices of the way you spend your time and your money to pursue loving Jesus as the primary desire of your heart. The fact that Jesus, uh, Jesus is calling us to repent for forgetting our first love, which is Him, shows the severity of it, that it is a sin. It is breaking first and greatest commandment. Now, the third point, the third uh, response is to act or to do. They were to do the works or actions they did at first when their devotion to Jesus was fresh and strong. A good example of this is Mary. Uh, in the TPT version in Luke chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus spoke to Mary and he said, Mary has discovered the one thing most important. By choosing to sit at my feet, she is undistracted and I won't take this privilege from her. Cultivating a responsive heart of devotion to Jesus takes time and effort. It is something that we must do deliberately and intentionally. You know, love does not grow automatically. Rather, it diminishes automatically unless we intentionally cultivate a responsive heart. It is very much like a marriage, you know, courtship and then a marriage. Before marriage, there would be courting and flirting, getting to know each other more, right? Both sides would be intentionally trying to get to know each other better. But after marriage, if it is not done properly, if there are no constant intentions to love one another, you start to get familiar with each other, you know? And the flame slowly dies off a bit, bit by bit. Yeah. I remember the time when I was pursuing my wife, Lini. When we first got together in a relationship, you know, I bought a flower subscription for her for 12 months. You know, this means she will get a flower every month for a year. This was done intentionally. And there were two objectives to this. Objective number one, well, she gets flowers, you know, cause all girls like flowers and I get to be the charming guy that gives flowers. Yay, <laughs> right? Number two, it was actually a countdown to when I would propose to her, 12 months. It acted as a reminder for me to be intentional in our relationship, to ensure that I was ready on my part to propose and marry her, to ensure that our foundations were right, that we were building up our relationship for an engagement and then a marriage. Right, long story short, I proposed to Lini, but it was uh, not a year later, it was actually way shorter. I proposed to my wife, um, my, my girlfriend back then, six months into our relationship because I felt God was saying that it was the right time. Now, there is a long story for that, which I won't get into it right now. If not, we will go on until the night. So, another time, all right? Now, we are married and we are four years into our marriage and going strong. As I reflect upon my marriage, there were times where I did not intentionally pursue her after we got married. You know, there were no dates, no gifts, no flowers. Like uh, um, not showing my feelings as much because I was either too busy with work or being too preoccupied with other things. 
You know, I had stopped intentionally pursuing her and it felt like something was missing. After that, we decided that we should continue going on dates and intentionally showing love to each other more. And that renewed the flame once again. And while preparing this sermon, I actually bought flowers for her. Yeah, so it's a very good reminder for me as well to be intentional in my marriage. What I'm trying to say is that intentionally pursuing someone does not end when you're married. You need, you need to continue the pursuit. The more you pursue, pursue, the more you love. And it's the same thing with Jesus. The more you pursue Him, the more you fall in love with Him. You know, Paul, in Ephesians 6, verse 24, which were the very last words he wrote to the church in Ephesians said, May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that loving Jesus is an intentional thing and that God will give grace for loving Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more grace is given to you to love Jesus. Now, what happens if we do not return to our first love? Uh, second part of verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Being a lampstand ministry speaks of a ministry with far-reaching influence to the nations. God's grace shown as a bright light from Ephesus into all of Asia. To have their lampstand removed was to lose the grace to influence others in a significant way. Now, this letter was written to the actual church in Ephesus in AD 90. Did they repent to this rebuke? I do not know. But what I do know that the church is no longer there. The church, is no long, the church that was there is no longer standing. Now, if we are to be a strong, excellent and dynamic church that influences the nation and impacts generation, we need to heed this warning. All right, part five, the reward. Now, verse seven, it says, Whoever who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. What were the rewards of overcoming? It is the privilege to eat from the tree of life. Now, the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, and then it was closed off to men, right? but it will be accessible again in the new Jerusalem. Those that are in the new Jerusalem would be able to partake of the tree of life. Church, let us overcome and let us overcome together and return to our first love and enjoy the reward that is the right to eat from the tree of life. I'm going to close with this. And I was talking to God and asking Him about this passage. You know, everything in this letter to the church of Ephesus must have a meaning and must make sense, right? What did not make sense for me in this letter was what does the revelation of Jesus, right? Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lamps and got to do with overcoming uh, the loss of first love, of forgetting him, forsaking him. You know, God told me to look at the theme of this letter to all those who have ears, listen to the Spirit, right? So at the beginning, God revealed this to me. At the beginning, He reveals the revelation of Jesus. Now, when was the other significant time that God, as God, walked among men? It was in the garden. 
You know, he was caring, taking care, he was loving Adam and Eve and communing with them. That was the secret of the garden. That was the gist of it. That was the most important thing, the communion with God. And at the end, what was the rewards for overcoming? The right to eat from the tree of life. Where was the tree of life? It was in the garden. You know, God was telling me, in the garden, Ephesus was tending to everything that God had called them to do. But they had lost sight of the single and most important thing about the garden, which is communing and fellowshipping with God. Adam and Eve had daily communion and fellowship with God. It was part of the original design. And that is what God is calling us back to. The original design to commune with God, to fellowship with God, to love Him with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds. SIBKL, we are a church that is really good in ministries. We do, we do them very well. You know? In fact, next week, we're going to talk about Gigi. You know, so you're going to hear about all the things that we are doing. But we are forgetting the single most important thing, our first love, communing and fellowshipping with God. Remember, if we get this right, all the works and ministry would be on the right path. But if we get this wrong, everything we do is in vain. God is calling us back to Him right now. This rebuke to the church of Ephesus is a rebuke to us to wake us up, to remember why we do what we do, to remember our first love, Jesus, to repent and act upon it, intentionally loving Him and communing with Him. Now, we're going to move to a time of communion and we are going to do this in response, as a response to this rebuke. The Holy Communion was instituted during the celebration of the Passover. What is the Passover celebration? It is a celebration to remember the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. In the process of that deliverance, God sent many signs to convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites. The final sign was the spirit of death coming to take the firstborn of every family. And instructions were given out to the Israelites to take in a lamb for each family, take care of it for a few days and sacrifice it. Put the blood on the sides and tops of the door frame. This was a foretelling of Jesus as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. This bread represents the body of Christ, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, taking the sins of the world, your sins and mine, going to the cross and dying for us. That the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me as we partake of the bread. Let us remember what He has done for us. Let us remember His goodness, His mercy and His loving kindness and let us repent of not loving and communing with Jesus. Let us partake of the bread. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup 
is a new covenant in my blood. We know that a cup represents Jesus' blood spilled for us, washing our sins. But did you know that when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was giving us a proposal? In Jewish culture, when a guy and girl intends to get married, their families will meet and talk about the different arrangements. Once they've come to an agreement, the father of the groom would pour a glass of wine and pass it to his son, the groom. The groom will take the wine, the cup, and lift it up and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which I make to you. What he is essentially saying is today, I make a covenant to you, to love you, to care for you, to protect you till my death. Will you marry me? So when Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, he is telling us, the church, the bride of Christ, he is saying this to us, would you marry me? Would you enter into a marriage covenant with me where I promise to love you, care for you and protect you to the point of my death, which he did? Now, as we partake of the cup, let us do this as an intentional act of love, uh, love and devotion to Jesus. Remember the third response to, to do or to act. Remember, repent, remember, repent and act. Now let us act upon loving Him. In the same way, also He took this cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us partake of the cup. Lord, we want to come before you and we want to say, Lord, we are sorry. Lord, we are sorry, Lord, for forgetting you as our first love, Lord. But today, today we want to remember what you have done for us on the cross of Calvary. We want to remember what you have done for us, how you've encountered us in such an amazing way and how we gave our hearts, how we gave our lives to you, Lord. We want to remember, Lord, those sweet memories, those sweet moments, Lord. And Lord, we want to repent. We want to repent, Lord, for not putting you as our priority. We want to repent for forgetting about you, for going about our ways, for doing everything else, but not doing the one thing, the one single most important thing, loving you with all our hearts, loving you with all our minds and all our souls, Lord. So Lord, turn our eyes back to you, Lord. Turn our focus back to you, Lord. Realign our lives back to you, Lord. Reprioritize it back to you, Lord. And Lord, with this communion, Lord, Lord, we want to seal, Lord, this act, Lord, of loving you, communing with you, and fellowshipping with you, just like how Adam and Eve used to do it in the garden. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus, most mighty name we pray. Amen. And now I'm going to end this message with the benediction. And then we go into a time of worship. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and grant you peace. Amen. Come, we are going to worship God right now. 
Let us honour Him wherever you are. Let us stand to your feet and sing this song together. And let us do this to remember, repent and act. Amen. Let us sing.